Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I want to welcome those that are on YouTube live right now and those that will be watching sometime later on today and throughout this week. Uh, this, uh, this weekend we're doing communion and so those that are on YouTube live, I would encourage you to go grab some, some crackers and juice and join us at the end of this message for communion. Rejoice in the Lord always is our current teaching series. We're working our way through the book of Philippians, and the title of this weekend's message is Joy in Righteousness. It's based on Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Those are the verses that were just read. Also, grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Most people think the Christian message is an invitation to be religious. I think it's why many people will reject it, and it's because they have a wrong concept of what what the Christian message is all about. They think it's an invitation to be, to be religious rather than entering into the most soul-satisfying, life-liberating relationship you will ever, ever know. And uh, you can see how I defined religion there on your notes in the parentheses. It's a, it's a moralism, get your act together, do good works, obey the Ten Commandments, and then maybe God will accept you and bless you. That's, that's the mindset that many people have, unless we're very clear with the gospel. Now, Paul shows us in this text from his own life that there is a major difference between being religious, works righteousness, and having a relationship with God, faith righteousness. So what is this righteousness? This righteousness is being in right standing with God, having a right relationship with God. And so religion is a works righteousness. You have to achieve it. 
through a code of ethics, set of rules. If you do all the right things, then maybe God will accept you and bless you. That's a works righteousness. That's, that's being religious. But having a relationship with God is a faith righteousness. We put, on, put our faith in Jesus. The work is finished on our behalf. And so we receive his righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. And so the Christian life is an invitation from being irreligious or religious to having a relationship with God. In fact, if I were to ask you this morning, do you know the difference between the three that I just mentioned? You know the difference between being irreligious to being religious? Oftentimes people are irreligious and they become religious thinking that they've entered into Christianity. So the difference between irreligion, religion, and a relationship with God. How would you define that? How would you help someone navigate that? It's important to know that. And... um, and so this is, the, this is an expounding on the first G in our 5G process <clears throat> of becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Remember last weekend, talked about full devotion to Christ, genuine Christian growing, Christian giving, going, all for God's glory. This, this is really kind of elaborating a little bit more on this first G, and you need to know this to really be a Christian, to be a follower of, of Christ. And so the questions we're looking at, you can see there on your notes, what is works righteousness? What is works righteousness? What is, what is religion? What does that look like? Second question, what is faith right, righteousness? What is, what is a relationship with God? And then how do I know I have a faith righteousness, that I really have a relationship with God? Now, you'll notice in verse 1, this topic is so important that we need to be reminded of it over and over again. And in verse 1, he says, finally, my brothers, I love that. He's kind of like a long-winded preacher who says, now in conclusion, and he continues on for a couple, you know, 30, 40 more minutes. And, uh, and so he's saying, finally, my brothers, and, and Paul goes on for two more chapters, okay? He's not wrapping it up here. But notice what he says here. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's the theme of the book. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. So I know you know these things, but I'm repeating these things because it is a safeguard for you. So when you come to church, you're going to have things reminded. I'm going to repeat things over and over again because it's for your safety. It's to guard you against straying and falling away. Second Peter 1.12, Peter does the same thing. I know you know these things, but I'm repeating these things for your sake. And so, a good instructor repeats himself. Let me say that again. Okay, you got it. And so you're going to hear me repeat things over and over again. This is what Paul is doing here. This is critical. This is important. We need to be reminded of this over and over again. And so what is works righteousness? It's based on verses two through six. It is confidence. Here's your first fill in the blanks. It is confidence in what I do. It's my performance. What I have, it's my possessions, are what people think. It's popularity. So that's works righteousness. And I'm combining here both irreligion and, and religion because it's important to know, know the difference between the two. This point describes both religious people and irreligious people. So what is, what's the difference between uh, 
irreligion, religion, and then a relationship with God. Here's, let me give you an easy kind of way to remember this. Uh, irreligion is follow your heart. Follow your heart. Religion is follow the rules. Relationship with God is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Now, I think the best example of, of this idea of religion and irreligion is found in the a story. It's typically called uh, the prodigal son. I think that both of the sons are prodigal. I think they're both lost. I think the elder brother is more lost than the younger brother. How many are familiar with that story found in Luke chapter 15? It's a great story. Let me just give you kind of the quick version of that story. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger son came to the father and asked for his inheritance, which was an insult to to the father. He has not passed away yet. And so you didn't do that, but it was an insult to the father. But the father is gracious. He gives uh, this young man a portion of the family's wealth, which was about one-third. And this young man takes that wealth, and you guys know the story. He goes out and spends it on crazy, wild living. He's following his heart because he actually thinks he's going to be happier away from the father and the farm. And going out there and living however he wants to live, breaking all the rules, it doesn't matter. I'm going to let my heart lead the way. And he spends all of his inheritance, and then a famine hits the land. And where does he find himself? He winds up in, yeah, he's in a, at a pig farm, which is really despicable for a young Jewish boy because pigs are filthy animals to the Jews, and so he's in a, on a pig farm feeding the pigs and starving to eat some of the pods of the pigs. And there's something that happens to him while he's in this condition, when he's kind of hit the lowest of lows in his life. It says that he comes to his senses, and he begins to think, wait a minute, my father's Hired servants are better off than me. What am I doing here? I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I will apologize and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. And so would you please hire me on as one of your servants? And so he kind of practices that speech and he's heading home. But I think it's one of my favorite parts of the story. As he's heading home, guess who sees him from afar off? The father. And it tells us that the father sees him from afar off. Why would the father see him from afar off? Because the father had been looking for him. The father had been looking for his son to return. And the father sees him from afar. And he's moved with compassion. And he runs out to him which was very undignified for a patriarch of a family in those days. He runs out to him. He embraces his son. And literally, the the Greek says, he smothers him with kisses. Oh, my goodness. That's overwhelming. It's showing us about the father heart of God, that he runs faster to us than we prodigal sons and daughters would run to him, he runs after us and reaches out to us. So the, so the son begins to kind of recite his little speech, and about midway into the speech, the father cuts it off and says, hey, my son's home. He was once dead, now he's alive. 
He's lost, he was once lost, now he's found. Let's throw a party, let's butcher the fattened calf, let's put a ring on his finger, robe on his back, and sandals on his feet. Praise God, we're going to celebrate. And so they're celebrating, and they're making all this ruckus in the home. And out in the field is the elder brother. And he overhears the, the dancing and the singing that's going on, and he asks one of the servants, what's going on? And the servant says, well, your younger brother has come back, and your father's throwing a party. He's butchered the fattened calf. And the elder brother is ticked off royally. I mean, he is angry. He refuses to go in. And yet the father, the father heart of God, he comes out to the elder brother and pleads with him gently and kindly. Your brother was lost and now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. That's why we're celebrating. And the elder brother responds to the father like this. Listen here. Very rude, very disrespectful. You listen here. I have served you, I've obeyed you all of these years and you never even offered me even a goat to butcher so that I could celebrate with my friends. And this son of yours takes a third of the inheritance, the family's wealth, and diminishes it by going out and spending it on wild living and crazy living and throws it away, and then you accept him back? And the father responds, so, so what you have in this story, you have the irreligious, follow your heart, and now you have the religious, follow the rules, I followed the rules, And then you hear the father's response. And the father says this, son, you've always been with me and all that I have is yours. I mean, he's defining for us what it means to have a relationship with God. That's, that's ours through Christ Jesus. The father is always with us and all that he has is ours. All the resources of heaven are ours through Jesus Christ. I mean, he's just defining that. That's, so when we follow Jesus, the Father is always with us, and all that is his is ours. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. It's out of this world. And, and so when you look at the elder brother, uh, I've seen that. I've seen that in church. My default mode tends to head in that direction. And I never did the irreligious follow your heart, but I certainly did the religious, follow the rules. And, uh, and I see a lot of people that are religious defect from the faith because here's their thinking, here's their mindset. Hey, I lived a good life. I deserve a good life. And this is what I get. I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I did all this. And I'm, I have to experience this suffering. Where are you in this suffering? They, little do they know that that they've always been with the Father and all that is his is theirs and they're not living in the reality of, of what it means to have a relationship with the Father. You see, the elder, elder son left the Father without ever leaving the farm. It was very much a works righteousness. And what's fascinating about this story is that it wasn't, it wasn't the repentance that brought the Father's love from the younger son, the younger brother, it was the father's love that brought the repentance. I mean, it's just a beautiful picture of our, of our father. And that makes, so you can see the difference between irreligion, religion, and then having truly a relationship 
with God. Let me, let me ask you a question here. Who hated it the most that the younger brother came home? The elder brother? No, the fatted calf. I heard that. <laughs> you were on it, weren't you? <laughs> because they made a big deal about the fattened calf. I mean, over and over again, that was a big deal. He's butchered the fattened calf. Woo! You know, so, so that was a big deal there. So look at verse 2, back to our text. Verse 2, Paul makes a contrast between religion and a relationship with God. He says in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times he says, look out, look out, look out. Why? Because religion will keep you from a relationship with God. It will make you angry. It will frustrate you. You will not have the joy that can only come to you through Jesus Christ. And he he calls them dogs, which they didn't have pets like we have these days, okay? Dogs were... uh, scavengers that ran in packs throughout Jerusalem. And and it was a very derogatory statement. He calls them evildoers, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Why would he say that? It's because there was a group of people known as Judaizers who had embraced Jesus. Oh, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus. He's the Messiah. And yet they added to that works. It was Jesus plus something else. And one of the One on that list would be circumcision, and he's just saying they're just mutilating their flesh. They don't really understand what true circumcision is or circumcision of the heart, the putting away of our our wicked, evil desires. And so he makes this contrast here between religion and then a relationship with God. Verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. We are the ones that have changed hearts who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's the key right there. We put no confidence in the flesh. So it works righteousness is putting confidence in the flesh. It's confidence in what I do, performance, what I have, possessions, or what people think, popularity. So let me remind you of this. So the Christian life is not a morally restrained will of following a set of rules, that's religion, but it's a supernaturally transformed heart that wants to live for God's glory by following Jesus. It's a relationship with him. We don't obey him to be accepted by him and to have his blessing upon us. We we are accepted and blessed in him, therefore we obey him. And when you understand what you have in him through Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter whether your life goes good, bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter because you have him. And you will always have him. You are always with him. And all that is his, all the resources of heaven are ours, regardless of what you may face in life. And so... Paul is using some really strong words to describe the religious leaders of his day. And I think he's doing that purposely because, and I found this to be true, I've found religious people to be, to be meaner than irreligious people. I really have. In fact, this is what I've found, that if, if, if a church is not reaching younger brothers, it's because they have too many elder brothers 
And I often imagine the story, if it went played out like this, that it was the elder brother that saw the son come before the father saw him and he ran out, him, out to him and chastised him and beat him up and sent him back out, out of the farm. That's what elder brothers typically do. Because they don't understand the father heart of God. And so he uses some pretty strong language here. Um, and, and I found that to be true. I, I, I found religious people to be self-righteous, holier than thou, sanctimonious, condemning, condescending, having an attitude of superiority, looking down their nose at everybody because they, they've appeared, they have... They have achieved such moral excellence, more so than anybody else. I'm better than you. Get your act together. You can be more like me. Kind of that attitude. And that's, that's religion. That's a works righteousness. Jesus consistently attracted the irreligious while, while greatly offending the religious His severest warnings were not given to atheists, but to very religious people. And so, what is works righteousness? It is confidence in what what I do, performance, what I have, possessions, or what people uh, think, popularity. And here's your next fill in the blank. It is a validating performance record. It's a resume. And so that's exactly what Paul gives us in verses 4 through 6. Listen to his resume or his validating performance record. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. There's that key phrase, confidence in the flesh, works righteousness. Though Though I may have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. So this is Paul's very impressive validating performance record before Christ, before he met Christ. Now, a a validating performance record is like a resume where you list your credits and your accomplishments and your accolades and your achievements and your academics and your merits and your skills. So what is the purpose of a resume or a validating performance record? It is to open doors to get you into some place that you're outside of. It is an argument for why you should be hired for a job or accepted into a college or part of a team or a club. This idea of a resume is fundamental to all of life. And... uh, It's not just for jobs and colleges, but also for friendships, romance, marriage, the esteem of others, and even our our own personal esteem is built on a resume system. Let me tell you a little secret here that I, I had to, before Nancy would marry me, I had to give her a resume, okay? And she had a stack of resumes like that, okay? And somehow mine made it to the top. Actually, I didn't have to turn in a resume, but she did have her checklist, mental checklist. In fact, that's a really good idea. <laughs> Maybe you should have a resume, okay? 
But you need to have some sort of checklist. You need to have some sort of checklist if you're wanting to get married to find that one that God has for you or wants you to marry. And so, so that's people, people not only size you up, how you look, dress, talk, where you work, how much money you have or make, what you drive, where you live, but, but we also tend to size ourselves up. When we, when we live consistent with our personal standards, our resume, we feel really good about ourselves, and when we don't, we don't feel so good about ourselves. We tend to beat ourselves up. And so your righteousness is what you boast in. Everybody has some form of righteousness and some sort of resume. Everyone has a resume or a righteousness. Everyone's resume is different. Everyone is trying to live up to some standard. Now, how do you identify what your resume is? Well, you, you can identify your resume, your validating performance record, by looking at the root cause of your inordinate emotions, both positive and negative. Just follow your positive and negative emotions back to the root. What's driving that? Why are you experiencing those emotions? And when I look back over the 30 years of ministry here at Desert Breeze, particularly in the early days, I think we're getting better at this through the years. We have not arrived, both Nancy and I. But I would get overly anxious when something would go wrong with the church and Nancy seemed to be the more trusting one, and she'd come alongside and say, now, honey, we're going to get through this. God always sees us through this. And so, so she seemed like she's more trusting, and I'm less trusting as I'm getting anxious about what's going on in the church. And then Nancy would get overly anxious when something would go wrong with our kids. And it was almost as if I was the more trusting one. Now, honey, these kids aren't, aren't going to be juvenile delinquents. They're not going to be in jail. I think we're doing really a good job and just kind of reminding her of, of where, we're, where we're headed with these kids. And, and so my resume was, the, was how the church was doing. Nancy's resume was how our kids are doing. Now, many years later, we both get overly anxious about the church and the kids, okay? Uh, and now we've got grandkids, but not near as bad as what we were in the early days. But we still have to work through that. We still, it's, it still comes up in our lives that we struggle with. Because of our fallen condition, we know we're naked and seek to clothe ourselves with some form of righteousness. So we rebelled against God. That leaves us, that spiritual alienation leaves us psychologically alienated. We need a resume. God gave us a resume. We rejected it. Now we've got to find a resume on our own. So Adam and Eve covered themselves with a resume, <laughs> with fig leaves. That was their resume. And I, I like how the Bible depicts it there because that's, that's oftentimes what we're wearing this, to show people that we matter, that we count, and they're nothing more than fig leaves compared to what we have in Christ. So Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. Fig leaves are a resume, Genesis chapter 3. You can read about that. So works righteousness is a validating performance record based on my performance, possessions, popularity. It comes in two forms. There's religion, follow, your, follow the rules, your religion, follow your heart. So what is faith righteousness? That's your next question. It's based on verses 7 through 9. Paul helps us with this. It's quite profound. Here's what it is. Next, uh, fill in the blank. 
It is confidence in what Christ has done, what I have in him, and what he thinks of me. So in, it is confidence in what Christ has done as opposed to what I do, what I have in him as opposed to what I have, temporal possessions, and what he thinks of me as opposed to what others think of me. And so what has Christ done for us? In fact, these three things you should be reciting daily, almost probably every morning. What has he done for us? <laughs> he, he died in our place for our sins. He came to this earth on a rescue mission. We're redeemed through his blood. It's absolutely breathtaking that the God of the galaxies came to this earth to rescue you, to love you, to give you fullness of life in him. So what do we have in him, well, my, my sins are completely forgiven. My past sins are completely forgiven. There's therefore now no condemnation in him. My present problems can be managed because he, he empowers me with his Holy Spirit so I can face anything and my future is secure. And in fact, I could even take it a step further. My bad things will work for my good. My truly good things can never be taken from me, such as my relationship with him and the best things are yet to come. Now, what does he think about you? What does he think about us? I know this, that no one loves you. No one adores you. No one has deeper affection for you. No one has given their life for you like Jesus has and does and continues to do daily for us as he loves us, has deep affection for us beyond anyone else. And so a Christian is someone who recognizes that God gives you the perfect resume. In Ephesians chapter 6, which I believe is the best uh, spiritual warfare chapter in the Bible, starting at verse 10 of chapter 6, he begins to list the armor of God, and part of that armor, if you guys remember this, is the breastplate of what? Anybody? Righteousness. Bless, breastplate of righteousness. And he's talking about a resume, a validating performance record that's imputed to us, that's given to us. And if you have the breastplate of righteousness on, it protects the vital organs. It protects your heart. And it, it keeps you from being uh, drug off by the temporal things of this world because you have what you have in him, a right standing with him. It's what he's done for you, what you have in him, and, and what he thinks of you is more important than anything in life. And therefore, if you have the, the breastplate of righteousness, you can withstand anything. So how do you know you, you don't have the breastplate of righteousness on? How would you be able to identify that? Because you could say that you have it on, but in reality not really truly have it on. Well, our problem isn't so much that we do bad things. We do do bad things, but that's not at the root of our problem. Our, our problem is that we turn good things into ultimate things and therefore do bad things. 
So we take our marriages, our kids, our jobs, our homes, our cars, our money in the bank, and those are good things, but we turn them into ultimate things. We try to get from them what we should be getting from God. And then therefore, when we don't, we crush those things under the weight of our unrealistic expectations. The people in our, in our lives, our kids, our marriage, our jobs, because we're trying to get from them what we should be getting from God. And it creates all of our bad behavior. It comes out of that. And so, emotions reveal the loves of, of your life, what's most important to you. It kind of reveals your validating performance record, your resume. So we are what we love. We worship what we love. You may not love what you say you love. It's not until when push comes to shove in your life, then what you truly love is revealed through your emotional response. And so, inordinate anxiety, as you've heard me say many times before, inordinate anxiety, over-the-top anxiety reveals that a good thing in your life has become an ultimate thing and it's being threatened. So when I mean inordinate anxiety, I, just, I don't just mean anxiety. Anxiety can really work to your advantage, but when it's inordinate, it becomes paranoia and sleepless nights and, and you're overwhelmed. Inordinate anger reveals that a good thing that has become an ultimate thing is being blocked. Let's just say you were really hoping for that raise and you didn't get that raise. You're not just angry, but you are bitter and it poisons you and everybody around you. That would be inordinate anger. Inordinate sadness reveals that a good thing that has become an ultimate thing is lost. And so you're not just sad, and it's okay to be sad over the loss of things in, in life, but you're not just sad, you're depressed and maybe even suicidal because you overly attached your heart to that. You don't have the breastplate of righteousness guarding your heart. You've, you've given your heart, your deepest loyalties and affections to something that is temporal. And of course it's going to let you down as opposed to the eternal, the eternal God. And so when you are feeling inordinate emotions, you need to say to yourself, I do this quite regularly <laughs> because I need to. This is a good thing that is being threatened, blocked, or lost, but it isn't, it isn't my righteousness. See, if you are absolutely devastated by the loss of something, it is, it is a good thing that you have promoted to being your righteousness, your validating performance record. The, the reason you can't handle it is because you need to demote it and replace it with your righteousness in Jesus Christ. By the way, that's, that's a daily, weekly, monthly battle for all of us. And when, when people criticize you, when you fail, when disappointments happen, they may make you sorrowful, but they won't devastate you. Now, let me just say, initially, when you get hit, when you're broadsided, when you're devastated, it's normal 
at first to be overwhelmed by that loss. But the key here is your reaction and recovery time. If you have Christ in your life, you're not inconsolable. You'll become consolable, and you'll be able to kind of get your bearings in time and then relocate where your validating performance record really is in Christ. You'll be able to, once again, put on that breastplate of righteousness. But what I'm saying is just because you have the breastplate of righteousness on doesn't mean that you're not going to be devastated from time to time. But, but your reaction and recovery time will certainly begin to shrink because you'll once again run back into your father's arms and go, yeah, this is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. You're the ultimate thing in my life. I trust in you with all of my heart. I do not lean upon my own understanding. In all of my ways, I want to acknowledge you. I want to have intimacy with you, and you will direct my paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And the reason why you're not devastated is because you keep coming back to your joy. And that's, here's the definition of joy that we've been working on throughout this series. It is a buoyancy in your life. Life can push you down. It can't keep you down. You keep coming back to the surface. And it's a buoyancy based on the pleasures you find and the eternal privileges that are yours in Christ Jesus, what he's done for you, what you have in him, and what he thinks of you. And that's the definition of joy. You have an indescribable and indestructible joy. In other words, there will be times in your life where you won't even be able to put words to it. You're so overwhelmed with the joy that you have as a result of knowing Christ. And you'll also know that there's nothing in this world that can take that joy from you. It's indestructible. You see, a Christian experiences a joy the world never, ever knows. It's ours in Christ Jesus. In hard times, happiness flees because happiness is based on circumstances and people and things. So in hard times, happiness flees, but joy endures Why? Because here's the next fill in the blank on your notes. Because everything is worthless compared to the priceless gain of Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 8. This is beautiful. This is absolutely amazing as, as Paul's helping us to understand what it means to truly have a relationship with God. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Anybody know what that word rubbish means? Dung? Yeah, I, I prefer to use the word excrement, okay? And I, I used to use the word crap, okay, so it's crap, but I've kind of stopped using that. A number of years ago when we were at Sandra Day O'Connor High School, there was a man that brought his young son and they were checking out the church, and this man had been teaching his son not to use the word crap And I used that word three times in that particular message. And so he turned to his son during the message and said, it's okay, you can use the word crap, okay? And so I'm very careful about the words that I use now. And and so, but that's what he's using here. It's it's crap. It's excrement. And, And it's almost as if he's saying, you know my two PhDs from Harvard? My winning the Nobel Peace Prize, my Congressional Medal of Honor, 
my eight Olympic gold medals, my six Super Bowl rings, my multi-million dollar company, my, my home, my cars, my mountain cabins, my toys, my, my marriage, my children, my family, my friends. It's all excrement compared to knowing Christ. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Now, I think he's using some hyperbole to make a point. And so the next time your friends are bragging about all the great stuff they have, they're showing you their cars and their home and and every great toy that they have, and you're feeling a little envious, (laughs) just say to them, it's all excrement compared to knowing Christ. No, don't say that, okay? In fact, you probably just celebrate their blessing from God and then just pray that they don't lose their perspective that that's all temporal, and that's really nothing compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Stars look really bright out in the country or camping in the mountains, but when the sun comes out, you can no longer see the stars. The stars of our accomplishments, our money, our influence, our power, list goes on, shine brightly, but they become dim and even unseen when the sun of knowing Christ shines bright in our lives. There's nothing quite like that. That's why I love the old song. I'm going to date myself here. I was raised in the church, and so we used to sing this song while I was growing up in church. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. How many are familiar with that song? It's a beautiful song. I've got to do that every day. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, what Paul's saying here is that the things that used to control him no longer control his life. So faith, righteousness is confidence in what Christ has done, what I have in him, and what he says about me, which is priceless compared to anything in this world. But how do I enter into this? How do I receive this imputed righteousness? Here's your next fill in the blank. It's ours through faith in Christ. That's what he says in verse 9. He makes it very clear. So so let me explain the difference between this imputed and and imparted righteousness. So imputed righteousness is where, where instantaneously we have a, a status change where we are declared right before God by grace through faith in Christ. It's imputed to us the right standing. We stand before God perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, access into the throne room of God. That's how God sees us. It's an imputed righteousness. Not to be confused with an imparted righteousness, and that's sanctification. Practically, we're not anything close to how God sees us through Christ. And so God begins to work in bringing our lives in alignment with how he sees us positionally. He works in our lives practically, and that's an imparted righteousness. He begins to work in our life to get our lives to line up more with this positional righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're struggling with your practical righteousness, you go back to your positional righteousness Because that's the basis of of that imparted righteousness. And so, it's ours through faith in Christ and and be found in him, verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. There it is. 
the righteousness from God, imputed righteousness, gift righteousness that depends on faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. So every other major cult and religion, as I said last weekend, is based on a on a works righteousness, a righteousness that is achieved. They will give you a list of rules, a list of things that you need to do. And if you do these things, you're in. Christianity is a faith righteousness. There's no list. All you need is need. And you humble yourself before holy, righteous God. And you give your life to him. And... and, and you have that perfect righteousness in him. And so it's not achieved but received. And, and it's, it's more than just, when we talk about faith, it's more than just a general belief in God. I, I, I talk to a lot of people and, and oftentimes they'll just say, well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe in God. I believe that God exists. No, 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 no. It's more than that. It's more than just a general belief that God exists. It's, it's truly making a commitment. It's, it's recognizing that your sin, acknowledging that your sin separates you from God. You're out of relationship with God, and there's not a thing you can do about it. You can't achieve it, but you can certainly receive it as you believe that Christ died in your place for your sins. And then you confess him. You make a commitment of your life to him. You give your life to him. You live your life for him. <clears throat> And so, listen to me. You got to get this next part. A lot of people miss this. There is a moment of commitment to Christ, and there is the practice of that commitment, which is moment by moment and lifelong. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. There is a moment of commitment. There's a moment of commitment to Christ, and there is the practice of that commitment, which is moment by moment and lifelong. Now, here, hear this you can't have the moment without the practice. If you told me you had the moment years ago, you walked the aisle, you signed the card, you got dunked in the tank, walking the aisle means you came forward for an altar call, or any number of things, and you did all of that, and yet you didn't have the practice after that, you didn't have the moment. You did not have the moment, because the moment will be translated into the practice the rest of your life. And there's a lot of people that have a false sense of security in their salvation because they had the moment, but they don't have the practice. I'm not saying the practice is perfect, but I'm just saying you're going to continue to pursue Christ. Believe me, he becomes the treasure of your life. And so you can't have the moment without the practice, but you can have the practice without the moment. Most people, like myself, I don't remember the moment, but believe me, Believe me, I've got the practice. Oh my goodness, I want Christ. I want to glorify him. I want to live my life for him. I've given my life completely to him. 
And so works righteousness is religion, follow the rules, or irreligion, follow your heart. But faith righteousness is a relationship with God, follow Jesus. So how do I know I have this faith righteousness? Verses 10 and 11. You have a magnificent obsession with knowing him, becoming like him, suffering for him, and being with him for all eternity. Let's, let me walk through this, but let me first of all give you one of, my favorite, one of my favorite verses. I have a lot of favorite verses, but this is kind of a life verse for me, and it's one of the shortest parables in the Bible to help kind of set this up for us. It's found in Matthew 13, 44. And it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it. And in his joy, in his joy, he goes home and sells all that he has so that he can buy that field for that treasure. What what is that about? Who's the treasure? Christ Jesus. And believe me, I mean, what would cause someone to sell all that they have? Could you go home and sell everything you have? Only if what you're getting is of greater value than what you have. Remember what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. If you were to tell this guy, wow, what a phenomenal sacrifice. You you sold everything so that you could have that field and have that treasure, he would say, that wasn't a sacrifice. Are you kidding? Do you know what I have? (laughs) Do you know what I have? Yes, I was willing to give it all up. See, that's the Christian life. Whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing compared to what you gain in him. Like I said before, what you have in him, if your life never goes better, gets worse from this point on, Having him is enough. It doesn't matter. If you're to lose everything in this life, what you have in him is better by far. And that's what what, um, Paul is trying to get across here. And so you have this magnificent obsession. So the Christian life is a magnificent obsession with a heavenly treasure beside which everything else in life is of no value or little value. And then he spells it out for us. Paul's been a Christian for right about 30 years, and this is the cry of his heart, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering and to be like him in his death, to somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's walk through this. First of all, it's knowing Christ. So you have a magnificent obsession. This is how you know you have a faith righteousness. You have a magnificent obsession with knowing God, verse 10a, that I may know him. John 17, 3, for this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, the Bible gives two, uh, two different Greek words for the one word knowledge, and they both mean a little different. The one Greek word means intellect, so when you know, you know it intellectually. But the Greek word that's used here is not an intellectual. It goes beyond the intellect. It has intellect in it, but it's an experience, It's a hard experience based on the objective truth of God's word. So it's an experience of God. When he says, I want to know him, he doesn't just want to know about God. He wants to experience God in his life. See, it's one thing to know that God loves you. It's altogether another to experience his love, to experience his love. And that's what he's asking for. And then he says, becoming like him, verse 10b, that's the next one on your notes. 
And he says, and the power of his resurrection, Romans 8, 11, if the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, oh my goodness, he's going to bring life change. Now the key here is not to focus on being like Christ. The key is focusing on being with Christ because as you focus on that and you are with him, believe me, you will become more and more like him. That's the order here, knowing him and becoming like him and then suffering for him, verse 10c, and may share in his sufferings. The word share is fellowship, koinonia. So there's something happening that when we go through sufferings, he is with us. We're getting a little taste of what he went through, but also we're able to put on display the glory that only he can give to us and the joy that only he can give to us. First Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So when we look around, we look at this pandemic, we look at the downturned economy, we look at all the trauma that's going on around us, he's saying, don't think that's strange some way. Don't think of it as something strange, a fiery trial. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, then you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, if I do well when all is well, that says nothing to the world around me. But when I do well, when all else is falling and failing, <laughs> then indeed my life is a witness to the world. And so as you go through suffering, people ought to look at your life and infer from your life that Christ is more desirable, more satisfying than all that life could give or suffering or death could ever take from you. That's what it means to share in his sufferings. And then being with him. For all eternity, verses 10d to 11, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, so our bodies are perishable, one of these days they will put on imperishable bodies, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There will be a time when everything sad will come untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been lost when we are with our Savior for all eternity. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So, Father God, it is absolutely amazing that for our sake you made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By grace, through faith in Christ, we have a perfect righteousness, a perfect resume a perfect validating performance record. And we confess that it is the sinful default mode of our heart to put confidence in what we do or what we have or what people say, but all of that is worthless compared to the priceless gain of what Christ has done for us and what we have in him and what he says about us. May the greatest passion of our hearts always be to know Christ and to become like Christ and to suffer for Christ and to be with Christ for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. Amen.